0: Welcome to Present Value. Cheryl Stanley is a lecturer in Cornell School of Hotel Administration. Prior to her time at Cornell, she worked at the Four Seasons in Newport Beach and at the Wine Cask Restaurant in Santa Barbara. She teaches courses in beverage management, including the very popular Introduction to Wines course, which hundreds of students enroll in each semester. In 2015, she was awarded the Ted Tang Dean's Teaching Excellence Award, and in 2017, she was named one of Wine Enthusiast Magazine's 40 Under 40 Tastemakers. Mrs. Stanley is a member of the Society of Wine Educators and the United States Bartenders Guild. She is the faculty advisor for Cornell Cuvée, the blind wine tasting competition team, which has won first place at multiple international wine competitions. Mrs. Stanley holds a bachelor's degree from Cornell School of Hotel Administration and a master's in hospitality and retail management from Texas Tech University. And for those of you listening, grab a bottle of wine, except for those of you in the car, as there will be some interactive parts of this conversation. Mrs. Stanley, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So a lot of people make this huge fuss over wine. They throw around really fancy terminology. They stick their nose deeply into the glass to get that scent. But really, according to you, wine is quite simple. So if you had to explain wine to a newbie, what would you say to them? It's easy. I I
1: say it all the time. Wine is just fermented fruit juice. And, you know, what we talk about in... Everyday life, wine is fermented grape juice. But you can make wine from blueberries, raspberries, strawberries. And so it's really, it's not that hard. It is a complicated product because there are different grape varieties and and types of wine. And it's grown, you know, in so many different places around the world. But just
0: on the basic level, it's fermented grape juice. Easy enough. So I'm of the vein where I think like a lot of other people... All I know is white, red, and Mm rosé. If you had to give a mini overview or a mini lesson of wine for someone like me who has maybe a little bit of a base knowledge, what would you do? Where would you start?
1: You know, the white red rosé is a great wit and i love it actually that you bring in rosé because that is something that wasn't on a lot of consumers vocabulary for a while maybe it was only whites infidel because their parents drank it or maybe that's kind of the first wine that they ever had but there's different types based off of the grape varietal that the wine is made from, or varieties, if it's a blend. And it could be something light in body. And And I love Kevin Zraeli's Windows on the World wine book, and he talks about body types of wine, or body levels. And he kind of says a, a light-bodied wine is like skim milk, and a full-bodied wine is like cream. And then you have all the range in between. And that's what's fun, is because with wine, there's so many different ranges. You have light-bodied wines to full-bodied white wines. You have light-bodied red wines to full-bodied red wines. And you can really kind of calibrate your own palate by just trying these different wines to see what you like. And it's great. Some students in my class are like, yes, give me that full-bodied wine. And other students are like, Well, it's gross. You know, it's too rich, it's too heavy, it's too overpowering, and that's okay. And what's interesting too is when one starts their journey with wine, they might like one particular type or style. And then they find that actually over the years, they change. Their experiences with wine have changed, and what they like and dislike also
0: changes. So you talked a little bit about different flavor profiles. Mm-hmm. At its very basic level in winemaking, what factors determine the taste of a wine? So the grape varietal itself, as our friends up in
1: the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences, and I love having v and here being on campus as well, you know, they'll call it the cultivar. So the the type of grape and your fermentation. It can also be aging techniques or vessels that are used, types of fermentation. So there's kind of your basic fermentation and then there's something called carbonic maceration, which is very kind of going off into the deep end. I won't really get into it, uh, but it's done in particular regions and it gives off a certain flavor profile and aromatic profile like bananas or kiwi actually in wines that have gone through carbonic maceration. So... Kind of going from there, the age of the wine as well. If it's young, wow, it's like all of a sudden I'm thinking in my, well, it could also be climactic conditions of where the grapes are grown in. But, you know, if the wine is young, if the wine is old, has it been aging in barrel or for another type of vessel or has it been aging in bottle? It's simple yet
0: very complex at the same time. Of course. So a little vocabulary lesson for those of us who are wine illiterate. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first word I want to define for our listeners tannin. What is it? So tannin is found in the seeds,
1: skins and stems of the grape or in some people call the grape actually the berry. And that gives astringency to the wine because when you you bite into a grape, you have the pulp, the inside, which is majority water But then you have that skin, and that skin gives you a little bit of texture. Uh, If you ever bite into a grape pip, the seed skin, that has tannin. Or if you were to ever eat the, the stalk or the stem, that too has it. And what happens is that tannin is extracted from the juice when the juice is sitting on the skins. And when it's sitting on the skins and, you know, sometimes a winemaker might choose to also use stem inclusion in kind of that maceration time period to boost up the tannin. Because the tannin texture, but the tannin can also add body to the
0: wine. So would it be accurate to say that tannin maybe closely represents sourness or is that inaccurate? So sourness is actually associated with acidity.
1: And the acidity is going to cause your mouth to salivate. And, you know, if you look at some of these, you know, the best wines in the world, say, for example, Bordeaux, a very classic region. You have Cabernet Sauvignon, which is the dominant grape varietal on the left bank, which we associate with some of these very high-priced, well-known wines throughout the world. The grape and the wine has both acid and tannin. And so they can actually counteract each other in your mouth, on your palate. And so you can have a wine that has high acidity, which is causing you to salivate, and then has high tannin, which is also drying your mouth out. You know, finding that balance
0: is kind of fun in wines. Our next word is balance. And I know it sounds like an easy word, but when we refer to the balance in a wine, what do we mean? Well, interestingly enough, balance has a different definition for every person.
1: Because if you really like sweet wines, your balance is going to have some sweetness to it. If you only like dry wines, you know, if you had any sweetness, well, that wine is off balance. So it's... It depends. Um, you know, in general speaking, we're looking at a wine, if it's a white wine, kind of the acidity level is in balance to the overall picture of the wine. If it's a red wine, that acid is in line with the tannin. Uh, if we're looking for a wine with some residual sugar from a cool climate, you know that the acidity is high enough to cleanse through the the residual sugar if it's meant to be perceived
0: as a drier style of wine. And what about length when we're talking about wine?
1: Well, I usually associate the word length with the finish and kind of, is it a very short finish or is it a long finish? And is it as the longer finish, is more complex. So you're getting the different layers as it's resting or still on your palate. And so some wines kind of go in and just and they die in your mouth, whereas there's others, your medium finish
0: and then your your long finish wines. And another couple of terms that get tossed around, new world and old ah, world. Yes. What is the difference between those? So
1: the new world, and actually this, I'm having an internal conversation in my mind lately about the definition of new world, old world. It's really the old world is... Western Europe, uh, we're looking at France, Germany, Austria, Spain, Italy. They've been making wine commercially, you know, kind of growing grapes, making wine commercially for over 400 years. And then you have the New World. New World is any of the countries that have been making wine commercially for less than 400 years. So, of course, North America, South America, Australia, New Zealand. And I'm reading some interesting history, well, not really reading lately, but have in the past, and then also attended conferences where they've talked about kind of the history of who really created distillation. Was it in the Middle East? Was it in Europe? But there's actually some archaeological digs that have been done in Central America. Well they've been making wine there. They weren't necessarily
0: producing it commercially or trading it. So it's that's kind of new world versus old world. So speaking of reading, mm-hmm. when I walk into a wine store, I am confronted by so many bottles, all of these different labels. I have no idea how to read a wine label. Mm-hmm. Now we have a couple of bottles in front of us. Can you walk us through how do you read a wine label and what are you looking for?
1: Well, First, I always like to kind of look at the producer because you can find the producer. Now, the producer will say some things. Well, you know, it doesn't have a lot of meaning. Don't say that to a producer. But, you know, there's, you kind of identify and you say, okay, this wine has been made by this person. Put that aside as just information. Then you want to dial into where the wine is from because where the wine is from, specifically in old world countries, is going to dictate to you what grape varietal or varietals are found in that wine. It could be a single varietal or it could be a blend. And then you also have in the new world or in certain parts of the old world, you would have a grape variety listed. They're going to tell you what's in the wine. Then the place for a new world or a varietal label. It's going to tell you where that wine is from. And then you also have the vintage. The vintage is going to tell you if the wine is young, if the wine is old, if the wine could still be developing. And so that's the year, and this is something very clear, it's the year that the grapes were harvested, not the year that the wine was released, and I get that question a lot from my students. So, if it says 2016 on the label, that means that the grapes were harvested in 2016.
0: And sometimes we see the words reserve and estate bottled mm-hmm. on a label. What do those mean?
1: Ah, uh, depends where in the world you are. <laughs> so, <laughs> for estate, it means that 100% of the grapes had to be grown by the producer listed on the label. The wine had to be made by them, bottled and aged by them and then, you know, sold to market. And then (laughs) for reserve, Reserva in Spain, Reserva in Italy, those mean something. Reserve in France doesn't mean anything. Reserve in the United States doesn't uh, mean anything. So it is a way that you need, as a consumer, you just need to ask, what does reserve mean to you? to the producer? Does it mean a special plot of land? Does it mean barrels that were aging better than others? You know, it's
0: why are they charging more? So this is really a lot of great baseline information for our listeners. But let's say you don't necessarily have the time to go really learn about wine, but you're in a position where maybe you entertain a lot or you have to go out for business dinners pretty often. What should you do or who should you consult if you're in one of those positions?
1: If you're in a restaurant and they have a good wine list, they care about their wine program, you should definitely ask to speak to either the sommelier, the manager, or someone in the restaurant who puts together the wine program. Because hopefully, (laughs) if they care about the program, they're going to know the types of wines and they'll be able to make recommendations that can enhance your experience. If you do a lot of entertaining at home, find that local retail store that actually knows what they're talking about and talk to them. Don't be afraid to ask questions. You know, as someone who used to work retail, I would love it when someone would come in and say, I'm having a dinner party. What would you recommend? And then it gives me an opportunity or at least it gave me an opportunity to find out, hey, you know what, what is this person like? And the question that I would always ask them is, what do you enjoy drinking? And then from there, if you said, wow, I love California Chardonnay, I'd be like, perfect. Okay, I can tell a style of wine that you like. So I might not recommend a California Chardonnay. I might recommend a white Burgundy. So it's also Chardonnay. It's just from a different country. And there you can calibrate the best recommendation.
0: Now, for our listeners who are maybe a little more ambitious and actually want to start building a wine collection, Mm -hmm how do you advise them to get started on that project?
1: That is a little bit more challenging because there's a lot more factors that go into developing a cellar because you have to think about vintages. You have to think about grape varieties. You also have to think about how long do you want those wines to age because some people love the romance of the cellar, but they actually don't like wines that have any age to them. So is that really going to be beneficial to develop a cellar to hold up money (laughs) in wine, and if they're not going to actually enjoy it. That being said, though, there are some people that actually buy wine and sell it on the secondary market and make a very nice profit from it. So how do you make those initial purchases? First, it's palate mileage. But it's also knowing what types of varietals or blends age better than others. You know, wines that have higher tannin in them tend to age better because the tannin acts as an antioxidant. So kind of going back to that earlier question, what is tannin? Tannin acts as the antioxidant, and so it helps it assists the wine in aging. Um, You can also get wood tannin, which I didn't talk about earlier, but wood tannin, the wine can extract the wood tannin from the oak barrel as it is aging in
0: the oak barrel. Now, I predict most of us are not going to have these lovely big wine collections at home and we'll be ordering off a wine list in a restaurant. Mm -hmm. And one of the skills that you teach your students is construction of a wine list Mm -hmm. and there is a method to the madness. So can you walk us through how a wine list gets built?
1: Sure. A lot of it is kind of going back to the concept of the restaurant. And first and foremost, you know, that's going to be number one, because you want to make sure that the wine program is in line with the philosophy and concept. You know, there's other kind of financial considerations that you have to consider. But really, when you're bringing the wines together to develop your list, you need to kind of think about, okay, is this going to match with my food? Is this going to match with my clientele? Does my staff have the knowledge in order to speak intelligently about the wine? Of course, you can do staff training, but that's a lot of time and money as well. And then when you're actually putting together the list, there's different ways to format it that make it much more friendly for not only the guest, but also for your staff. And listing within the sections, within your kind of divisions, your segments. So you could have sparkling wine. Depending on the size of the list, you could have white wine. You could even subdivide that into white wine. You know, differences between Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc, Riesling. I do recommend... Listing the wines or kind of highlighting the varietal or varietals for blends that are found in the wines because, as American consumers, we tend to buy by varietal. You actually see labels being changed throughout the world listing varietals on somewhere on the bottle to help the American market. Uh, But you know, once you've put that wine list together actually listing within the different segments from lightest to fullest in body. And when you do it that way, the guests don't know exactly that it's lightest to fullest in body unless they're very familiar with the varietals that are listed. But it really helps the staff. It gives them confidence because when they look at a list and they're like, oh, my wine knowledge is not very good. Someone says, I'd like a full bodied white wine. I like Chardonnay. There we go. Scan, scan the wines and look, Chardonnays down at the bottom. OK, these are going to be the full body
0: Chardonnays to recommend. And you also shared with me in an earlier conversation that making the price of the wine end in a certain number, that can actually boost sales, Right it could boost revenue kind of going back
1: to menu pricing philosophy and there's some very interesting research actually done by some of my colleagues in the hotel school about that but ending in 29 cents, 59 cents, 79 cents or 99 cents especially the 99 cent one if it's 24.99 people focus on the 24 and not the 99 so you're getting 99
0: more cents out of that dish or item on your menu fascinating so on the topic of pricing of wine, I'd say a lot of people assume the most expensive one is probably the best tasting one on the list. But that's not necessarily always the case. And it's sometimes issues like this that can make wine more intimidating. Mm -hmm. So can you dig into, first of all, that myth that I talked about, about the most expensive wine being the best wine, and also some of the other, let's say, pretentiousness that can really shroud great wine?
1: Well, really, the best wine is the best wine for you. It's whatever you like to drink. I always bring up my mom in class because she loves sweet wine. And it has to be sweeter the better for her. And she'll have it with salad. She'll have it with steak. And I go to restaurants and I order her a glass of wine. And the server's always like, oh, that's okay. I'll bring it for dessert. And I said, no, no, no. She would like it now. (laughs) And they say, oh, okay, It's like, but that's the best wine for her. That's what she is going to enjoy. So first and foremost, always drink what you want. In terms of pricing, yes, there is a perception that the most expensive wine is the best. And that's not always the case because one, there's brand recognition, you know, built into pricing. A wine might have gotten a 100 point score from a wine reviewer or magazine, and boom, the price goes up, because the demand for that wine goes up. So there's supply, there's demand. Of course, there's the wine making techniques that also go into the wine. Are you allowed to harvest by, or do you have to harvest by hand, because you're on some 60 degree slope, or can you mechanically harvest? So There's so many things that kind of build the price of a wine. What type cork do you use? The weight of your glass also equates into that price. So it's not necessarily a a black and white answer, but the most expensive is not
0: always going to be the best for you. So my producer Harrison Job has an interesting question. He says that restaurants know that you will always order the second cheapest bottle of wine because nobody wants to seem like that cheapskate who orders the least expensive bottle. Therefore, the restaurant will make a higher margin on that second cheapest bottle. Is this true or was this just something that Harrison did when he was on a budget in New York? You know what? It's
1: so funny. I've heard a lot about this. And I think there was some research that actually came out about it. I'm not quite sure. I haven't read the research. But yes, it is that you don't appear to be the cheapest. And if you're entertaining clients and someone else is looking at the wine list as well, you want to do that. And I have to be honest with you, and I'm saying this to you know anyone listening, I love a good value. I'm a sommelier, but I'm a sommelier on a budget. And to me, it's a game to find the best wine for the cheapest price. But there is always that like, oh, I don't want to appear to my server to be super cheap and order the cheapest bottle on the list.
0: So Harrison is really our embodiment of that millennial thinking when it comes to drinking wine. But there's also a lot of chatter, generally speaking, about millennials and wine consumption. Can you break down the overarching trends pairing millennials to wine drinking?
1: They are willing to experiment They are willing to experiment with wines. And I was having a great conversation yesterday with Doug Frost, a Master Sommelier, as well as a Master of Wine. He was on campus. And it was so, we were tasting a natural wine in the advanced Spanish seminar last night. And someone that he knows through his daughter said, oh, you don't understand these wines. To a Master Sommelier, Master of Wine. Why? <laughs> he knows everything. I mean, he's amazing. And he's 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 a walking encyclopedia. And it was just interesting to think. And he actually posed the question to the students who were primarily 21 to, I think, the oldest student in there was 30. And he asked that question about natural wines. And he said, do any of you drink them? If you were to ask that to anyone my generation or older, Natural wines, they'd be like, no, we don't drink those. They're dirty. They're not necessarily dirty. But there is that perception. And there are some wines that have a little bit of funk to them. Adds, some people say adds character. But it's, you know, they're willing to spend more money. They're willing to experiment. They are not brand loyal. They are not my grandmother who drank Louis Jadot Puy Fouce every day until she was 90. I mean, that was her brand. She did not stray from that brand unless the restaurant didn't have... Luisa and so that's actually a challenge for the wine companies to, because they're not brand loyal, how are the wine companies getting the wine into the hands of these younger generation that, who are starting their journey with wine? Where do they do that? They do that a lot in restaurants. And they do a lot of outside tastings. They hire educators. And that's a great way because millennials want to learn. And they want to have an experience. And that too is creating experiences out of the wine. A lot of it has to do in restaurants, but then you see some interesting marketing as well, like 19 Crimes and the interactive app that you can get on the phone and actually
0: learn about the person on the label. So one thing millennials also like is getting that really unique niche bottle. Mm -hmm. So let's say like a bottle from Patagonia or something. But they might be the only person in the restaurant who wants to have one glass from that bottle. So how do restaurants balance that? They have to crack open an entire bottle for one person, but they don't want it to go to waste. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, hopefully they have priced the wine out accordingly. A recommendation, and this is a little inside tip, (laughs) um, a lot of restaurants will cover the cost of that wine by the glass in that first glass of wine. So if they have waste... The bottle cost is already covered. It's kind of like whatever else is poured, on top of that, that's going to be beneficial money for the restaurant. Kind of cover your other costs. It's hard because you could use a Coravin. Coravin, expensive, very timely in service. But the rest of the wine would not go bad. What I would hope that that restaurant who chooses to have this wine from Patagonia on the list... They have tasted the staff on it and have tried to get the staff excited. Or they have someone who is hand-selling that wine. I mean, I found when I was developing my own list, yeah, I would have one or two wines that I love to hand-sell. Because they were fun. They were different. It was something that kept my kind of daily routine a little different. And I was pretty much the only person who sold them in the restaurant. And it was just a fun way to say, hey, look what else is out there. But I would make sure that my costs were covered because if I had guests who wouldn't want it for the week, well, that wine would die in the bottle and then I would have to dump it.
0: And often tied to this discussion about millennials and wine is the explosion in the popularity of rosé. Can you walk us through the origins of that and how it's become so popular?
1: Well... I think it goes back to wanting to experiment and try something new. I mean, rosés have been made for thousands—you know, thousands of years. They used to actually blend white wines with red wines, make pink wines. <laughs> but it's—it's it's this time where people want to learn, people want to experiment, people are traveling, and they're tasting rosés in other parts of the world, or they're seeing them on shelves. And they're like, "Wow, what's that?" And it's not your parents' white Zinfandel anymore. Um, White Zinfandel used to dominate the market and being an off dry rosé for so many years, I couldn't sell rosé to save my life because it was, oh, no, I don't like sweet wines. It's like, but rosé wines are amazing. They're perfect with food. They're perfect on their own. They have a little bit of texture and body to it. And then they have that, you know, it's crisp and refreshing. It's just perfect. Perfect. But they're like, oh, no, I don't want to drink those. And so I think it's really fun. Some people are predicting in the wine world that the rosé fad is over. And I'm like, well, it's not really a fad. And it's not a trend. It's, it's here to stay. It is a style of wine that deserves representation on a wine
0: list and on a retail shelf and in someone's refrigerator. And another innovation out of Rose has been Froze. Oh yes. And you know the secret of how Froze is made. Can you educate our listeners on that?
1: Well there's you know, the what people hope Rose a Froze is made out of is Rose wine. But what was great well what is great about Froze is you can actually take red wine and blend it with white wine. And oh, there you go. You got pink wine and now it's Frozé. You know, you might be adding fruit or, or garnishes with it, kind of in your sangria style, and it's, it's just
0: very refreshing. So, Frosé is one of those really interesting wine innovations, and there's constant change happening in this industry. Some innovations are purely for marketing purposes, but others actually meet a unique consumer need, like modifying packaging. Can you walk our listeners through these two different types of innovations? So packaging innovations are fantastic.
1: I think it has enabled wine to be served in other venues that before, because they were packaged in glass, it wasn't open to them. Um, So poolside or on the beach, because you have single serving and you have wine in cans. I just want to, you know, let everyone know that a canned wine that you see primarily on the market today is a half bottle of wine. And that's something that, you know, you pop open a can of Coors or Bud and that's one serving. Well, a can wine is actually two servings of wine in one can. So wineries have been very happy with it because they've actually increased sales. But I don't think consumers are as aware of the portion size that's in that can. There's also Truett Hust, which is a bottler out of California. They had really cool paper bottle, and which has decreased the shipping weight of the case, and that's really kind of very ecological, very sustainable, too, and so I think that's really smart. Unfortunately, it didn't catch on, but I think they were a little ahead of their time. I presume that it's going to be coming back. And then you have single-serve wines as well that are fun. And, you know, kind of other developments, utilizing wine, as you mentioned, in food product and... Yeah, I think oftentimes it's more
0: of a marketing ploy than it is, you know, kind of adding any benefits to it. Now, regarding the discussion about packaging. So you said a lot of consumers won't know that they're actually drinking a half bottle of wine. How do they get educated more? Is it that the serving size is printed out larger on the bottle? How do wine producers educate their drinkers on that?
1: It is not required in U.S. law to put serving size on it. So you would not know unless you know traditional package sizes of wine products. So um, majority of wines are sold in a 750 milliliter bottle. that's 25.4 ounces. and at a restaurant you usually get between five ounces to 6 ounces for a glass of wine. So at 25 ounces, that's five portions per bottle. And, you know, thinking about that, people don't often, they just say, oh, it's a glass of wine. And as some restaurateurs are changing their glassware and getting larger glasses to make the glasses seem a little bit more elegant or have a different weight in your hand, portion sizes are slowly creeping up. So you see eight ounces or even nine ounces for a glass of wine, um, which means that there's potential for being over the legal limit if you had to drive home. So there's always that that liability factor. And I think restaurateurs need to think more about that as DUI and, and other kind of the laws are, are constantly being reviewed for the safety of your guests and the general public. Also with portion sizes, you have to think about the alcohol in it. So it's not just quantity, but it's what is the alcohol level? A California Zinfandel can easily be 155 or 16% alcohol. What's listed on the label, but then it could actually be 1% alcohol more. Because of that, wow, you're approaching fortified wine, you know, port levels here, where the average portion size is 2.5 to 3 ounces. And you might be getting 8 ounces at the restaurant.
0: All right, so, so we, we might have a lot of people sloshed <laughs> on the beach with their canned mm-hmm. wines this summer. Another thing, though, that I've seen increasingly as I go into wine stores is the growth in screwtop wines. And I remember in college, drinking a screw top was seen as cheap or it was seen as budget, but that doesn't seem to be the case anymore. So what's driving this maybe slow, but increasingly growing shift from cork to top?
1: Well... Screw top, i.e., stealth enclosure, fancy name for it. Uh, it provides an anaerobic environment for the wine. No oxygen is getting through the cork. You know the very slow microoxygenation from the cork, which some winemakers like because the wine is perceived as fresher. But. Other people do not like it because they actually like how the wine develops when it's exposed to air. So the biggest push initially in the screw top market was wines that would be consumed within one to three years. Pretty much within 48 hours of purchase. Now, as there's no shortage of cork. But with cork, there comes a potential for an infection, corkiness. People often talk about it's infected with trichloroanisol, And that TCA infection is going to make the wine have wet dog, wet cardboard, kind of the bloomed rind on brie cheese, aromatics, and it will mute the wine as well. So you could be slightly corked and it just mutes everything, or it could be have more cork taint to it, and that's when you're going to get more of those aromas. And everyone is different in terms of sensitivity about about corked wines. And, of course, with stealth enclosures, you don't have that. Well, asterisk exception, because there's always
0: exceptions with wine, you could actually have cork taint or TCA in the winery. Now, contrary to what a lot of people think, when you're opening a screw top, you're not just grabbing the top and twisting it off hurriedly. Mm-hmm. How do you properly open a screw top cap?
1: You actually open the bottom or you twist the bottom first, that large piece of plastic or (laughs) material at the bottom underneath the top. And so you break the seal and then you actually twist the top off. Because what happens is if you don't break the seal on sometimes the whole piece just keeps on moving and it's stuck. But this way you break the seal and twist off.
0: Now, shifting over a little bit to competitors of wine, some have argued that cannabis is really going to be one of the biggest competitors to wine. So more people, we're seeing more innovations on infusing cannabis into wine products. Is this the way to ensure that wine can continue competing with cannabis? Shankin News Daily, that publication came out with an article
1: that they did actually in Colorado. And it was a 50-50 split of was cannabis impacting wine sales or was it not? You know, 50% of the people that they, the retailers that they polled said yes, 50% said no. So it's still out there whether or not what impact wine is going to have or cannabis is going to have on wines. Now, in terms of infusions, yes, people are talking about it. I personally have not had one yet. So, I think we might have to look to Canada first or in states like California that, you know, produces 85% of the wine in in the United
0: States to see how that impacts. And of course, beer is a competitor to wine, and we're seeing a lot of M&A activity within the beer world. Can you give us an overview of the M&A landscape for beer? So my colleague Doug Miller can cont- speak much
1: more in detail about M&A in beer. But yes, there it's interesting because as these larger companies are losing market share in the United States, and as the talk and the interest in craft beer is increasing, you're seeing the large conglomerates like AB InBev purchasing these craft brewers or Constellation, actually here in New York, purchasing craft brewers, and then, you know, kind of enveloping them into their brands. And so you think, oh, I'm not drinking Budweiser. I'm drinking Goose Island. Well, actually, Goose Island is owned by Budweiser. So a lot of it is perception of the different brands. There has also been a lot of M&A in the wine world. And with these mergers and acquisitions, uh, it's going to be interesting to see how some brand iconic brands that have been around for a long time, kind of where they get positioned in the market going forward. And
0: do hard seltzers at all pose a competitive threat to beer or wine?
1: I think hard seltzers pose a threat to beer. I don't see it as much in wine That's not to say, though, that because hard seltzers and their popularity is rather new in the market, what they can do. I mean, it's kind of like Zima. (laughs) If you think about the days of Zima, uh, that was what clear beer, I think it was called. So that's why
0: I associate them more with competitors, competitors in the beer world. Now, of course, the big question in the industry is what is going on with Pernod Ricard, which owns brands like Absolute Vodka and Kahlua Liqueur? And whether or not they'll be acquired. What's your perspective on this potential megabuy for whoever chooses to acquire them? Interesting.
1: That was also a topic of dinner last night. And in France uh, last week when I met some people from Pernod card And think it was all talk. Now, there is some interesting movement, not necessarily at Pernod Ricard, but with some other brands being sold, for example, Constellation, kind of clearing you know, really big brands for them, selling them to Gallo, freeing a, up a lot of capital. What is Constellation going to do? Is Constellation going to go for more premium brands? Is Constellation going to expand their beer portfolio? Are they going to expand spirits? Are they going to wait to see about cannabis? They have become a player in the cannabis industry in Canada. So really the talk about Pernod Ricard has decreased and it's pretty much everyone's just saying, no, that was one, one person who was making a lot of talk. But there's still people are hedging kind of going, OK, but something else is going to drop and you don't exactly know what it is.
0: So, other big news to impact the industry has been the California wildfires. Do we know yet what has been the impact of this latest round on winemaking in California?
1: Not a hundred percent. What was good for the fires was that a lot of the grapes had come in already. So, the wine was in barrel or in tank. Also, the vines, speaking with some grape growers in California, the vines acted as a fire break with that. So those, that was good news. Uh, the smoke taint in the wines, that's something that's going to be very interesting. And actually, Australia has been the leader on smoke taint research because they had years of fires before we did. So trying to see what exactly is going or how the smoke taint is going to impact the wines. I mean, of course, as a Californian, born and raised in California, it's absolutely devastating. But California it was very much, oh my gosh, this is incredible. But it's not California is not the only place in the world that is having water stress. And that water stress, and we have to talk about it, climate change, is going to impact the entire world of wine. It will impact places that are currently growing grapes and it will impact places that could potentially
0: grow grapes in the future, because right now it's too cold. But it could change. So we know that climate change is going to affect this industry. What are winemakers doing right now to combat the effects of that?
1: Climate change? Well, it
0: depends on who you talk to.
1: (laughs) Um, Water and looking at innovative ways to irrigate. You can't just turn on the sprinkler anymore. And now they have sensors in the soil and once the water gets to a certain temp- or once the soil, excuse me, needs a certain level of moisture or it's gone below the, the minimum level of moisture, it will actually turn on a drip to get into the vine. So they're, it's, they're very, very careful with their water usage. When I was in Champaign about a week and a half ago, they were actually speaking about frost And that's, it's, you know, what can they do about frost? Well, they could, you know, put fans in the vineyards. They could use smudge pots. But then, of course, if you're burning something, if you're burning grape cuttings to warm the vineyard, well, then, you know, you have smog and everything in the atmosphere as well. So they're really trying to be creative with What varietals go where, their irrigation, reusing as much as possible, you know, recycling water that they can in the vineyards
0: or in the winery. And one thing I've been reading more and more is that Oregon is becoming very popular in regards to winemaking. Why is that?
1: Oregon has a great climate. You know, and everyone just says, oh, Oregon is the Willamette Valley. Oregon is so much more than the Willamette Valley. Of course, you have Pinot Noir and Chardonnay and Pinot Gris being grown in the Willamette Valley. That Willamette Valley makes over, you know, about what 70% of all of the wine of Oregon. But they have a lot of very different climactic areas in the state. You have... Eastern Oregon, where, you know, Snake River Valley, which is growing some fun Riesling, kind of shared with Idaho. You have these Rhone varietals up near Walla Walla, because of course they share that AVA with Washington. And then down in Southwestern Oregon, this is cool. They're growing Spanish varietals. And you think about Spanish varietals, well, we got Italian varietals in California. We have varietals that we associate with France in California. No one in the U.S. has really embraced Spanish varietals. I mean, I shouldn't say that because, yes, of course, they're grown in other parts. But really, you're getting Alvarino and you're getting tempranillo. And it's like, wow, these are really good. And you think about its proximity to the Pacific Ocean. The mountains there that all impact, you know, they can grow at elevation for the diurnal temperature fluctuations, which help retain acidity in the grapes. So there's, it's, there's so much going on. Yeah, it's a perfect climate. And also right now, you know, we used to think Oregon being very, very wet and cold with climate change, it has impacted the vintages
0: from year to year. Now, bringing it back to your teaching here at Cornell, where you teach the very popular Introduction to Wines class. What do you want students to take away from your course?
1: Drink what they like, but also know that wine is a life skill and wine is going to get you a foot in the door. Being able to talk about wine, even at the very basic level, is going to start a conversation or actually maintain a conversation that could then grow into talking about other subjects. And I love hearing the stories from my students talking about how the wine's class came up at a med school interview or came up when someone was having dinner with their boss and then oh look 3 weeks later because they started talking about wine and then they started talking business he got a promotion. And it's just so much fun and to bringing families together. I mean, talking about wine with a parent, it's ways that it's bringing the family back to the table and having fun
0: with wine and food. And I love that the textbook for the course is Wine for Dummies, which is a little surprising, but it makes the topic more relatable. And it really shows that anyone can learn wine. Mm -hmm. And it's easy to understand. It's
1: an incredibly well-written book. And yeah, it's approachable. And students actually
0: like to read it. (laughs) I know. I have it on my kitchen table at home right now, actually. And so you've been teaching this course for some time now. What's your personal journey with wine? What sparked your interest in wine?
1: It was working at a bar in high school. Well, it kind of starts before that. My dad was very interested in beer primarily, but sometimes he would have wine. I'd always ask him uh, what he was drinking. And then it was when I started working at a bar in high school. This was you know, the East Bay, Walnut Creek, in the 90s, mid-90s. So you had craft brewers, you had wineries, and every Thursday night we would have a winemaker or a brewer come in and tell their story and they'd do a, a wine dinner or a beer dinner for the guests. And I just loved listening to the stories. I was like, wow, this is really cool. And then I liked being kind of in the bar atmosphere. And when I enrolled in the hotel school as a freshman, it was my introduction to food and beverage management course. We were costing out food recipes. And I had a chocolate business when I was a kid. So I had costed out lots of food. But we were costing out beverages. and I was like, this is great. I love this. And it was like everything clicked. And then I took the wines course my first semester of junior year. And again, it was this is my path. This is what really, really interests me. And through my summer internships and then, of course,
0: with permanent employment, it was like, yep. I'm on the right path. So for our listeners at home, we took a little break and grabbed our bottles of wine and glasses, as should all of you. And we're going to start with a 2017 dry Riesling from the Finger Lakes region, and it has a screw top. So, Cheryl, can you walk us through from opening to drinking what we should do with this bottle of wine?
1: Certainly. So first, you're going to twist the bottom of the screw top. And now that it has been released, you will unscrew the cap. And there, you know, don't need to present it to anyone. Don't need to smell it. It's all set to go. Um, You can smell the wine. If you so choose, it smells like wine. Great. We're ready to pour. So what you're going to do is, you know, if we were in a restaurant setting, you would pour with the label facing the guest. But we're just having a glass of wine here. So I'm going to pour it for you. And you'll pour you know, approximately four ounces of wine. I always like to start with my first pour, um, especially if I'm sharing a glass of wine with someone that I don't know, to be on the lighter side because I don't know how fast you're going to drink. And I don't want you to feel pressured that you need to drink more if you don't want to um, because you can always refill. But you can't take it away. So this way, it's, you know, we just have nice and these are lovely glasses that we're we're drinking from. And so there we are. Cheers. Cheers. And in terms of the wine, doing this professionally, you look at the color. If you're just enjoying a glass of wine, the color, if it, you know, is not brown, Because as a wine ages, whether it's red, white, or rosé, it'll eventually turn brown. So you don't want the wine, when it's young, to be brown. But there are some wines that are meant to be brown, that are exposed to air, like an Oloroso sherry. And so that means the wine is okay it matches. it matches the the type that it is. And so, you know, just give the the glass a little bit of a swirl. I should mention actually holding the glass. You want to hold it with the stem or the base and not with the bowl. Because if you hold the glass in the bowl, you know, we Chill down our white wines, and your body temperature is actually warming up the wine. So if you hold it with the stem and, and certainly no pinky out, we don't we don't need to be that that person. But if you hold it with the stem, there you're actually not impacting the temperature of the wine, and just give it a sniff. What do you smell? I smell fruity. Fruity, yes, good. And so it, it's kind of fun because as you're starting off, you're going, oh my gosh. You don't normally smell something and then have to think about what you're smelling. So if you smell it, it's like fruity. Great. What type of fruit? Is it orchard fruit? Is it citrus fruit? Is it stone fruits? You know, to me, Riesling, I love Rieslings because it always has kind of that peachy apricot note, but it has a little bit of apple in it as well. And then as you progress and as you kind of think about this more, you can say, wow, what is the ripeness of the fruit? And the students always look at me kind of funny. And I say, is it overripe? Is it just right? Or is it underripe? Because that can also, if you were blind tasting this, that could also lead you down a path of what was the ripeness, what was the climate like? Is it a warm climate? Is it a moderate climate? Is it a cool climate? But we don't have to worry about that. We're just enjoying a glass of wine. Getting a little too excited over here to drink this wine. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the fruitiness, the fruitiness is great. You know, this wine definitely has some aromatic intensity with, with the fruitiness. We can go ahead and taste it. So I slurp. And what I'm doing when I'm slurping is, and of course, I have to say, depending on where I am, I slurp. But for this, for evaluating the wine, I'm actually bringing oxygen in across my palate and then kind of chewing. And I'm forcing those aromatic molecules up my retronasal passage to my olfactory nerve. And I'm also swishing it around my mouth. So if this wine had any tannin, I could pick up on, on that tannin. If that wine, both tannin from the grape as well as tannin from the oak. But some people don't like to slurp, and that's totally okay. Some people might just kind of bring in, kind of put air in their mouth, and then let me let, chew. Me, let me give it a try. Let's see.
0: <laughs> Very odd way to drink wine. Not something I would do in a restaurant or with clients. <laughs> exactly. You know, and that's and then that's what's
1: funny because you kind of have to figure out. Where if you're you're with clients, though, that are super geeky and really want to get into wine, if you do do a slurp, they might be like, oh, yes, she knows what she's doing. (laughs) But really, again, it's just enjoyment. You know, my brother is not into wine, but he's a tax attorney in San Francisco. And, you know, especially being a partner at a law firm... There's pressure for him to entertain his clients. And so he will constantly call me or text me and say, oh, I'm, go- I'm giving a gift or, oh, I'm going to a restaurant. And one time he even called me from the men's room <laughs> and said, you know, oh, I am at, you know, I can't remember the name of the restaurant. Can you please help me select a bottle of wine? And so I looked, I quickly looked up the wine list on the Internet and said, OK, here's the wine that you should you should pick for dinner.
0: Well, if I had to think about taxes all day, I would be drinking probably a bottle of wine every single day. And now we're going to shift over to a 2016 Chianti Classico with a cork finish. So,
1: Cheryl, take us through. Sure. So with cork finish, this is kind of the pomp and circumstance with opening a bottle of wine. And that, too, adds to the complexity and kind of this, oh, I don't know how to open up this bottle. So I don't necessarily, you know. I don't want to go there. Whereas a beer, easy, you use the crown cap. So with a cork finish, it's very important for you to open up the bottle underneath, kind of cutting the foil, I should say, underneath the lip and not up at the top. And it's hard because when you buy one of the corkscrews, say at Williams-Sonoma or Sur La Table, they'll come with the foil cutter and the foil cutter will just cut the top. Well, historically speaking, the foil actually contained lead, and that's why you would always cut the bottom because you wouldn't want the wine to come in contact with with the metal. But now it's different, so we don't necessarily have to think about that. But yes, we do kind of I always recommend. Also for a service perspective is to cut underneath the lip and the reason why is because it can help prevent drips. Because if you don't cut your foil really well up at the top, you could actually drip the wine. I mean, you can drip the wine also, but it's less likely. So here you cut the foil off and then you use a corkscrew of some sort. Some people use the rabbit, just latch on and pull up. Uh, Some people use the angel wings. I don't recommend the angel wings. Sometimes it can kind of get out of hand. I recommend the double hinged corkscrew. Pull tab is one of those brands. And this way, if you don't get the proper angle, you have a little bit more flexibility than a single hinge, because with the single hinge, if your angle is not correct, you could actually break the cork as you're, you're pulling it up. And then there's also the twist corkscrew, which is similar to the Rabbit, but you just attach on to the top and twist the corkscrew down, and then it catches the cork itself, and then you just keep twisting and it comes right back up. For older bottles, especially corks that might be compromised in some way, I found that over the years it applied even pressure on the cork. And so it actually was better. And I was able to get the cork out in one piece and not having it break. Ah, perfect. So we're going to pour. Now it is important if you're in a restaurant setting, actually, to, you know, hopefully the server is, is doing proper service, but allowing the host or the guest of honor to taste the wine, kind of out of respect of the guest, even though you might have selected the bottle, allowing the guest. So you're my guest of honor. I would ask the server to please taste you on the wine. You would approve it. And then the server would taste the rest of the table and pour me last. Because if I'm the host and I'm the one who is determining how many bottles are being consumed, if you have to short pour someone, you short pour the host. Because then the host will say, oh, okay, bring me another bottle. Or, oh, we're actually going to wait a moment and order something else. So they're kind of the host is directing the table. So... You know, looking at the color, of course, our our beautiful Riesling from Dr. Constantine Frank was that pale straw in color with a slight green hue. Again, things that if you're just having a glass of wine on a daily basis, you don't really need to think about. But with this Chianti Classico, the Chianti Classico, we're seeing red. So immediately it's, okay, great. It's a red wine. You can look at the intensity in color. You can still read through the wine, but it has that nice kind of ruby red color. To it, it no nothing brown looks nice and young. And what's fun is when you smell this wine, very different aromatics than than the riesling. That riesling we got the peaches, the apricots I mentioned, the apple, a little bit of lemon, a little bit of kind of stone in the
0: riesling. But here we're getting some nice red fruits. I don't know. Would you agree? This can get through my stuffy nose. Yes, <laughs> yes, I do. I do smell some some red fruits. Mm -hmm. And that's fun because sometimes
1: you might just pick a color. In your mind, it's, oh, I'm getting red. Okay, well, what do you associate with red? Do you associate red with strawberries, raspberries? Some people, depending on their daily diet, might say red, okay, that is Hawaiian punch or that is a Jolly Rancher. Okay, well, Jolly Rancher red is usually cherry. So it kind of depends. You might, you might get a color. You might get an image that pops into your mind when you smell it. And then you can start to dissect that wine. But that's really if you're kind of looking at it a little bit deeper. What's most important is that you enjoy what you're drinking. Okay. So now we'll take a sip. Mm-hmm. So you notice, even with your stuffy nose, you're still getting some texture on the palate. Mm -hmm. You're still getting a little bit of a drying sensation. Do you get that? Yes. Yes. So a little bit of a drying sensation, that's the tannin. But you're also salivating, kind of in the back. Mm -hmm. And so they're competing against each other in your mouth. And that's, you know, we talked about balance earlier. And so this wine is very, very well balanced. And you have the acidity, you have the tannin. This wine, if, you know, if we were eating tomatoes, a tomato sauce, like a bolognese, there's acidity in the tomato sauce. Well, there's acidity in this wine, so they can complement each other. There's tannin in this wine, and there's fat in the meat in the bolognese. So you're actually using the tannin to cleanse the palate, to cleanse through that fat from the meat in the sauce, And that's what's so much fun with food and wine pairing is you can really play with your food and your wine at the
0: same time to really
1: create some really interesting experiences.
0: Well, I think I've been drinking my wine wrong this entire (laughs) time. Now, I have one last question for you, which I'm sure you've dealt with before. What's the best way to get a red wine stain out of something?
1: Oh, wow. Okay. I'm going to give a plug to two different brands. There is a brand called Wine Away and there is a brand called Stain RX. In the wine's class, we unfortunately have students who will spill wine on other students. And we have purchased individual pack kind of like the wet ones, individual ones, but it's Stain RX. And if you spill on yourself or your neighbor, the TAs actually will distribute the Stain RXs. This great story. I have this amazing pair of pants. They're white with navy pineapples on them. And since pineapples are the sign of hospitality, I had to get these pants. My husband was doing an event called Meat Fest that he does every year. And I spilled red wine and barbecue sauce on my white pants. I took the Stain RX. I spritzed it. Da da Stain was gone. You would never know that I had both barbecue
0: sauce and red wine on white pants. Well, that's good to know. I'm definitely going to go pick up a packet of those. Well, Cheryl, this has been such a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for joining us, and cheers. Cheers. Thank you. The Present Value Podcast is an independent editorial project created by students at the Samuel Curtis Johnson Graduate School of Management at Cornell University. This episode was produced by the Present Value team Michael Brady, Harrison Job, Bernardo Espinoza, Caroline Wright, Jack Moriarty, James Feld, and Jonathan Tin. I'm your host for this episode, Serena Alavia. Our engineer was Sam Lupowitz, music by Poddington Bear, logo by Kalechi Pomongo. Special thanks to Cornell's Language Resource Center and Resonate Recordings for their technical assistance. Until next time, thanks for listening to Present Value.